Welcome to Pop Culture Retro, which was recently voted the 15th best podcast by the residents of the Golden Years Retirement Community in Boca Raton, Florida. Each show, we'll revisit some of your favorite pop culture memories with insider and outsider perspectives. Now, please help me welcome your hosts, Ike Eisenman and Jonathan Rosen. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Pop Culture Retro. Today, we are thrilled to welcome a two-time Emmy Award winner, two-time Golden Globe winner, one of the stars of groundbreaking series like Cagney and Lacey and Queer as Folk, and author of the memoir, Apparently There Were Complaints. Please help us welcome Sharon Gless. Sharon, thanks so much for joining us. Um, thank you, guys. This is great. <laughs> so thank have- you for having me. No, we have our pleasure. We were very excited about you coming on. I mean, we have so much to cover in your career, but to start with, I've been reading your memoir. Apparently, there were complaints, and it's just fascinating. Uh, so well done, funny, and heartbreaking. So you you grew up in L.A. Your grandfather, well, the grandfather was a prominent attorney. His clients included Howard Hughes, Cecil B. DeMille, Louis B. Mayer, Joan Crawford, etc. Just absolute Hollywood royalty. And he advised you to not pursue a career in show business. Right. He said, stay out of it. It's a filthy business. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, what, I was what not afraid. No, did he give any reasons or just no? Just that was... No, I, I didn't ask it. My, my, my relationship with my grandfather was quite formal. Mm-hmm. And if he said something, I'd never challenged him. But I, in my mind, I was thinking that that's how you made all your money. Um, ah, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, <laughs> but I just said, yes, Grandpa. And then, you know, many, many years later, I, the dream didn't go away. So I just went after it. And I got the greatest support from him. Oh, by the time I was 26 years old, I admitted I wanted to be an actress. That's way late to start in this business. But yeah, (laughs) I think if I had started earlier, I may not have made it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, both your grandparents played important roles in your life for different reasons. Can you expand on that a little? Well, my probably the most powerful person in my life was my grandmother. Um. For one thing, she held all the purse strings. Uh, that is not why I, that's not why I loved her. I, I feared her sort of before I loved her. Mm. But um, when someone is holding all the purse strings and you're young, you have to dance, you know? And well, probably in, in your adult life too, if you allow someone else to hold your purse strings, you got to dance. Mm-hmm. And and I just, um. She was very strict with me, very critical about my size, because I've always tended to be heavy, except during certain ages, you know, in my life, where I'm sure you've seen it on the roles I played, I I fluctuate. Um, She frightened me. Mm. And, um, but there was something about her that I, that was real, and I respected her, and I really tried hard to dance. Hmm. and not not literally you know what i'm saying oh yeah sure and and then then she was married but they were sort of divorced it's complicated it's in my book um Hmm. to my grandfather who started out really as a very very poor boy in phoenix arizona his father drove the stagecoach 
and he came to Hollywood and became probably the most famous attorney in the golden days of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Incredible. And one of the things that I loved reading about uh, you was that you you worked for a film company and part part of your job was to read lines with actresses who came in and you realized that you were better than they were. <laughs> well, immodestly that... speaking, right. yes. <laughs> um, I didn't realize that until I did it. It was just part of my job. And I, I remember trying very hard to give that actor and actress everything that they would need for their response, you know? And um, I did realize when it was through that Gosh, I was better than they were. And I made up their paychecks. It's going to make up mine. <laughs> Wait a minute. I don't know why I'm so afraid to do this. I can do this. Um, and once I knew, this sounds, please, there's no arrogance in this at all. You know, it's a long journey. <laughs> but once I knew that I could do this, I stopped being afraid and I started pursuing it. And Oh, maybe two years later, Universal Studios took me behind the secretary's desk and put me in front of the camera. Mm. And the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> so then you become a contract player for Universal. Right. And you were officially the last contract player. Is that true? I am. Yeah. As, as, I became the last contract player in the history of Hollywood. Oh Universal Studios was the last studio to do that. Huh. And um, their contract system ended, anyway, 10 years after I started. And everyone else had already left or been asked to leave. That's sort of how it works. And I was still there. And I contract system ended, but they kept me and asked me to do a series for them, which did not go well. <laughs> it's in my book. <laughs> um, but when I left, I... The contract system was over, and I was the last one to leave the lot. Mm. <laughs> they would just put you in different roles all the time, whatever they saw fit? Yes, but I had to audition. Okay. I always had to audition. Mm -hmm. um, the only... Uh, the, 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 the good thing about being kind of clear is that you'd be sneaked the sides. Sides are your, your script that you're going to read for the producer. The scene. And I'd be sneaked the scene the night before. Mm. So I'd get to at least work on it. Usually when you'd come in for an interview, they just hand you scenes in those days. And you just did it cold. Mm. One, one, one of the things I loved reading in your memoir, talking about contract players, you, you were cast to be a date for Steven Spielberg. What were your thoughts then about being part of the job? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he, he, he had just finished doing um, Duel, I believe was the name right. of the movie with, with Dennis Weaver, a movie for television. And he was just coming off location. And I guess he wasn't dating anyone at the time. And it was a big deal to go to the uh, first American Film Institute's dinner. Um, I think it was the first AFI dinner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, he needed a date. And I'm sure Steven Spielberg never needed a date, but they were going to try and make it one of those events, you know, where you show up the, the two young people, right, in the, in the business. And um, so um, Richard Zanuck, who's the head of 20th at the time, asked 
Bunny James, who was the head of the talent at Universal, to send him all of her contract players' photos. And he picked mine. Mm. So I, I was the one. He picked me up. It was a black tie dinner. And he picked me up in his tux. And he opened up his tux. And he had a T-shirt on with the Roadrunner on it. And his first <laughs> words to me were, beep, beep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy would go on to that career. <laughs> go on to this amazing career. I saw him once. Well, I've seen him a couple of times. But I saw him once after that. And he now was huge. Right. And I went up to him and I said, Stephen, I am sharing this. I don't know if you remember we went out. I said, I want, whatever happened to you? Your career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you had a lot of guest starring parts in some of the major shows of the time, among them Bob Newhart. And so you tell a few great stories about Suzanne Pochette. And so she was very friendly to you. What was she like? Suzanne Pochette was wonderful. She was um, so supportive. I was so young and so green, and she knew it. Mm -hmm. And um, she was just had a mouth on her um, that she'd use constantly. And um, she just she, she she just made me laugh. It was in the days when you just didn't wear dirty t-shirts. In our first day of rehearsal, I was petrified. I'd never worked in front of a live audience, and I'm sent over. I'm loaned out right. to her show. I'm taken off the Universal lot and sent to her show, to Bob Newhart's show. She walks out with a T-shirt she just had made that had rhinestones on. It says, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> My phone. Um, yeah, bitch. Um <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to tell you stories about her. I don't know how. You can how, tell you anything. <laughs> you want me to tell the story about her getting Absolutely. the offer? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, now you've got, I wonder you got if me that, crazy. I wonder if I'm that's where you were heading. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, she um, walks out in the bitch t-shirt. And do you know, I have to tell you something. She knew you, Monique James, who was head of town at Universal, I think called Suzanne and said, I've got a young one for you. And she's petrified. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure Suzanne is doing all this for my bedroom. She said, well, <laughs> I just got an offer from a feminine hygiene spray company. They want me to do a commercial. <laughs> I said, really? Are you going to do it? She said, hell no. She said, Dorothy Provine, who was an actress, said, goes on television and tells everybody that her cunt smells. They didn't want me to go on and tell me mine smells worse. Said, oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know who your audience is, but I think you know the story because I so Yeah, yeah no, okay. It's, story. I love it. it's an absolutely fantastic story. So. <laughs> yeah she was so so good to me as filthy a mouth as she had on her um <laughs> she also was so kind she knew when you were scared she nursed me through that that one little scene mm. when it was over she you know we walked off stage and she put her arm around me and she said you won't fantastic so that's the kind side of her do you know 
Yeah. Sure. Oh my God. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so after some more guest appearances on, on, you know, very popular shows like Emergency and the Rockford Files, you became a regular on the series Switch, um, starring Eddie Albert and Robert Wagner. Now, mm-hmm. I had the honor of working with Eddie Albert in a Disney film, and I loved him tremendously. Um, oh. What are some of your memories of him, of, of him and, and Robert and being on the show? Well, I just got a, um, I get a call like, oh, once every three or four weeks from RJ, from Robert Wagner. Oh, that's mm. To this day, mm. calls and checks on me. They were wonderful to me. I was so green. And um, Eddie, Eddie was a little more abrupt, you know, because, I mean, he'd yeah. done everything in this business. Stage and, 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 and every, he'd done everything. Stage, series, movies. Um, and he always wore this red sweater at his desk. They played two. One was an ex-con. One was an ex-cop. And they formed this detective agency. So Eddie had his office. And he always wore this bright red sweater at his desk. And one day I went and I said, about the sweater. He said, yes. I said, are you trying to upstage me? He said, honey, I don't have to wear a red sweater to upstage you. <laughs> <laughs> he was, but I, I, he, he said it with love, but he was tough. And, and RJ, Robert Wagner would, um, he'd come up to me and say, you know that funny thing you do? And I said, well, yeah. He said, do it in this scene because they'll cut to you, even though I'm talking said okay so they start the scene rj's talking and i'm supposed to do this take uh that i do apparently and he drops one of his props he said sorry guys while you're relighting sorry i'll let uh, he leans over to me she didn't do it if you do it they'll cut to you and and uh, i said oh and uh, so he did it again, and I did what he told me to do on the side. The camera's on me. Um, it's my close-up. And he said, they're going to use that close-up. They don't care what I'm saying. <laughs> and he would do that to try and feature me. He then would teach me, he said, now listen, you've, uh, this is your first series of your own, you know, that you're on as a regular. He said, I want you to stop doing guest spots. I said, really? I said, why? He said, because now you have your own series with me here. And he said, just keep on this avenue that you're doing. He said, you'll get your own series one day. And by God, he that's I did what he told me. And I went on to do almost nine, I think nine series. Wow. And you credit Robert Wagner with with basically giving you your career because you were on the outs like at that time, oh, right? Oh, yeah. I was being um, apparently fired from Universal. Mm-hmm. I'd been there like I think for three years, and I was just um, uh, I I wasn't getting parts, and the head of talent, Monique James, would not return my calls, and. Um, I had heard 
that Robert Wagner had asked to meet me for his series. And it was whispered, if I don't get this, I'm out. I'm out on the street. But I didn't let that bother me. I just had to go in. I went in and I did my best for, for RJ. He was the only actor who was present with my reading. And um, the next day I got, and catch this, the, the, the um, description of the actress, the role I was going for was a Natalie Wood lookalike. Well, check it out. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't have a prayer. Okay, but I went in and RJ thought I was funny. Hmm. And the next day I got a call saying, well, saved by the bell oh, wow. from the head of talent at Universal. And I was so angry at her because I'm not an arrogant person at all. I was so angry at her. I said, they're lucky to have me. <laughs> I, I, obviously, I was humbled. But um, she said, well, well, yes, yes, they are. <laughs> um, Anyway, <laughs> RJ uh, took me under his wing he and Eddie in his own grumpy way. <laughs> um, when I got my star on Hollywood Boulevard, many, many years later, Eddie Albert showed up. And he mm. was not a kid by then. He showed up and spoke for me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he he was extraordinary to me, and yes, I knew his grumpy side, but be, because <laughs> my my co-star Kim Richards and I were both children, we were nine and eleven years old. He was very gentle with us and very kind and very supportive, and I remember him fondly and spent a lot of time with him. He was really great that way. I'm so glad to hear that. So I think I think he's he's an he's an actor, and he yeah. admires actors. You know, yeah. <clears throat> pardon. Yeah. Well, so did you like uh, change? Can you hear my or... husband talking on the phone in the other room? No. Actually, no. No. <laughs> okay, not good. At all. Not at all. All right. Um, but um, did your life change um, now that you were a regular on a series? Yes. Mm. Oh, it did. Um, it, it changed forever. I then went on to a, um, a big miniseries at the time. I got the lead, the female lead. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um. And then I went on to other series. Um, There's so many. I, I, if you remember them, um, <laughs> I'm happy to talk about them. Um, I went in and starred in my own series for the first time called uh, Turnabout. And I played a man trapped inside a woman's body. <laughs> it didn't last long, <laughs> but but it was my it was my starring role. I got billed over the title. And NBC sort of got, they became, I understand, enchanted sort of with me in that role and thought I was the new Carol Lombard, they said. So then I started getting more series. That's I good. got uh, House Calls, a replacement in Redgrave. Oh, no, we're going to ask about that. <laughs> you want to ask me about that? <laughs> well, I, I will ask about that. Yeah. Well, first, of all, I briefly want to talk about one other show. The miniseries used to be such a big event in television. And you were in my favorite of all time, Centennial. Uh, you were Thank primarily you. with Andy Griffith. And what do you remember about the show? And also, there was an incident in the book that just blew me away. You were very fortunate not to have had, had something happen to you in that. Uh... Yeah. Do, do I have time to tell that story? Sure. sure. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, anyway, I was still a young and, you know, contract player. And, and I was invited to do the last chapter of um, 
centennial. They were done in chapters, you know, right. 12 chapters. And it was done in Colorado, all in the same town that art directors kept changing as the generations went along. Um, and as I said, I was just still a young contract player and I didn't like get my own trailer or anything. And they, they had this thing called quads and they were long trailer with four little dressing rooms in them. And I was given one of those. And every morning they'd lay out my clothes and I'd go in and <clears throat> in a dresser. I was just, I went in by myself. I put on my costume and I lay down waiting to be called. And um, I kept falling asleep. And every morning while I'm asleep, I get this banging at my door. I get up and I open it and it's, it's um, not Eddie Albert, it's, um, Forgive me, who am I talking to? Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith. It's Andy Griffith's driver. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Andy Griffith's driver. And he said, Andy wants you to come over and hang out with him in his trailer. I said, oh, okay. So I'd go every morning and I'd hang out with Andy. And then he, when he would go to shoot scenes, he would say, don't you leave. Stay here. I want you here when I get back. And some scenes we had together, so that was nice. We'd go off together. But so I never left his trailer, um, except to go back to my room. Like if I wanted to use my own bathroom, so I wasn't going to use Andy Griffith's bathroom, you know. <laughs> so I'd go back to mine just briefly. And um every morning, this was the ritual. I'd go in, change my clothes, lie down, fall asleep. There's a knock on my door. Andy wants you to hang out with him. Okay. So I do this for over a week. I hang out with Andy. So we get to be really close friends. He's clearly one of the funniest men in the world. <laughs> Not only is he a fine dramatic actor, but he's also a great comedian. Anyway, so we go back, we finish our episode, and not to confuse things, I was in episode 12, the last one. But episode 11 had not been shot yet. They were shooting them out of sequence. So we all go back to Los Angeles and the actors of episode 11 arrive. And um, we heard that a boy in episode 11 was found dead in his dressing room from um, with the poisoning you get from a heater. Oh, carbon monoxide? Carbon monoxide poisoning. He was found yeah. dead. Mm -hmm. And it was in my dressing room. <gasps> the one where I kept falling asleep. And oh. when I'm working, I don't fall asleep. I'm too nervous. But Andy's driver always woke me up. Saying, Andy wants you to come into his trailer. I'd been that. I, I was hmm. that exact quad. The one I was in. And... Um, God bless his soul, you know, God rest his soul. The young actor, he was like 22 years old, had a two-year-old son, oh. and they found him dead oh, in, in that room. From the, What was happening is the snow, it was very cold, and the snow was freezing the pipes. Hmm. But they, they kept running in the trailers, you know, even though the pipes were frozen. So. Well, and just a second, you, you mentioned, you're talking about house calls. You know, since I can, I had started doing this show, I, I've been so disappointed in finding out the true nature of some of the people that I used to like 
Wayne Rogers came up like such a real jerk to you. <laughs> what was that atmosphere on the show like for you when the lead is basically saying that he didn't want you? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I hate it. I never badmouth actors. I mean, no, you know, no. they have their problems. But, you know. um, but Wayne was, Wayne Rogers was specifically mean to me. He, they had, I was, asked to replace Lynn Redgrave. Excuse me. That takes guts. <laughs> but, you know, I do what I'm told. I'm a contract player. So, Wayne, the, the studio, CBS said, Wayne, of course, wants to meet you. I said, fine. Any place you say, Sharon. Well, I picked the bar of, of uh, Taylor the Cock, which is a big hangout in the valley in those days. There I am having a drink and a cigarette. So I was then. And he was appalled because he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, and it just it just didn't <laughs> go off well. But the studio said, do whatever you want. Smoke, drink, it'll meet you where you say. <laughs> so I said, okay. And um, oh, within five minutes of meeting him, he said, I could have saved her, you know. <laughs> I said, I beg your pardon? He said, I could have saved Lynn Redgrave's job. Wanted. I said, oh, okay. Uh, Lynn Redgrave wanted to make as much money as he did. She was billed over the title with him. <laughs> she wanted to, she wanted to make as much money as he did. She's had carried the show equally and wanted to nurse her baby on the set. And he had her fired. Unbelievable. <laughs> Try that today. Um, you know, we, we, um, we've done a lot since then. Cagney and Lacey did a lot. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, Wayne just made my life. Oh, so at the party, I said, there's a party that CBS had for me and Wayne was supposed to introduce me to the cast and the executives is in a private home. It was a lovely party. And Wayne gets up to introduce me. He said, I didn't want her. She's not my choice, but CBS loves her. They think she's the new Carol Lombard. I mean, it's the worst introduction. I, I just was stunned, but I didn't know what to say because I'm the new kid in town, you know? <laughs> wow. So I sort of let it go. And after a while on the show, he took me said, he said, I don't like what you're doing in that character. I want you to stop being Carol Lombard. I said, I'm not being Carol Lombard. He said, I want you to be Grace Kelly. I said, it's a comedy. It, it, I said, I'm just being Sharon Glass playing another person. Hmm. It was very difficult. It was hard. Yeah, oh, do you want me to tell you a story about Lynn? Sure. And my party? Sure. <laughs> do you like that story? I do love that story. Okay. So we cut to, after a year, the show ends. It dies. Um. And I have a party for the cast, just to, whom I never really got to know very well, because most of my scenes were with uh, Wayne. Um, anyway, I have a scene, I have a party in my little house in the valley, and I invite all the cast, say thank you. And, and I thought, I'm going to do something really classy. I'm going to invite Lynn Redgrave. Hmm. I'm going to call her up, see if she'll come. Well, she's classier than I am. She accepted. <laughs> And she said, 
hey, you want to do something? I said, sure. It's Lynn Redgrave, for God's sake. And she said, you want to stage a fight? I said, great. She said, <laughs> I said, sure, what do we do? She said, well, I said, pull up in my driveway. You know, she said, okay, when I pull up in your driveway, I said, I'll see your lights when you arrive. And she said, okay, when you see my lights, come out. So I said to the guests who'd been there a couple of hours already, I said, who's that? So I go out. I said, I'll be right back. And I go out. <laughs> There's something, hello, Lynn Redgrave. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it was a big deal to meet her. <laughs> and um, she said, hello, Sharon Glass. You ready to start? I said, I am. She says, fuck you. I said, fuck me. I said, you can't act for shit. That's why you got fired. I said that to a red grape. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> and we keep fighting all the way across the lawn to my side door that I had open. <laughs> me, fuck you. And I slammed the door in her face. And everybody could hear her voice. You can't miss her voice and I slammed the door and I and I and I turned to the guests and said what I come sorry I don't know how you're We're this fine. is how <laughs> this is how it went and um they were just <laughs> of course <laughs> petrified I said I'm just kidding I said get in here I opened the door and tried to get in here. And it was the best party. <laughs> they missed her and they'd loved her for three years. You oh. know, and they'd never seen her again. And and it, it was it was fabulous. It was all due to her ingenious idea. Oh my god, what fun. <laughs> yeah, it was. God God rest her soul. Mm. Well, anyway. speak speaking of Cagney and Lacey, it comes along and and you turn it down twice. First, the TV movie, which went to Loretta Swit, and then the the regular right. series, which went to Meg Foster. But the part right. was originally uh, written with you in mind. Yes. Yes. Oh. Apparently, yes. I, I on on Queer as Folk, the uh, not Queer as Folk. I'm sorry. On um, oh Turnabout, where I played the man trapped inside a woman's body. Well, mm -hmm. the two story editors were the two women who were writing the script. For Cagney and Lacey yeah. on spec. Hmm. Barney Rosenswag came up with the idea and he his not his wife at the time, but his girlfriend was a wonderful writer and she had a writing partner. And Barney told them the idea he had and what he wanted them to write. And they did. And they came to me on the side saying, you know, we're writing this thing. Um, oh no, wait, no, they never told me what they're writing. They came to me saying, Is there anything you want us to do with um the series I was doing with them. I'm, I'm making it confusing. Anyway, um, Barbara goes home while I'm shooting. Uh, sorry. I'm getting confused. What's the series where I played the man trapped inside the woman's body? Turnabout. 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 So anyway, she goes home and she tells Barney, I just found Cagney. <laughs> he said, really? He said, yeah, I found her. So he looks at the shows of turnabout he said nah that isn't Cagney <laughs> he said all right so they started looking some more she was still writing and uh, they went to a screening of a mini series I'd done called Moviola the Scarlet O'Hara Wars <laughs> and I played Carol Lombard <laughs> that's when NBC saw me play Carol that's how that all happened um yeah. 
and Barney and Barbara were in a screening of the Scarlett O'Hara Wars. And Barney pointed to the screen. He said, there's Chris Cagney. <laughs> Barbara said, that's Sharon Glass, the one I told you about. <laughs> uh. <laughs> said, oh, yeah, okay, well, her I want. So they, they offered it to me, and I, I turned it down for many reasons. And um, Barney says actors are not always the best judges of material. So I turned it down, and so they got Loretta to play it, the pilot, and Tyne Daly was signed. And um, then it went to series, and Loretta had to go back to um, Mash. House Calls. Uh, no, not House Calls, sorry. Mash, yeah. Mash, thank you. Thank God, thank God you're here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, then they had to recast for the um, series, and Barney came after me again, but I had just been put in house calls. Hmm. So I couldn't do it. So Meg did it. And they did it for a year with Tyne Daly. And it didn't, it didn't work. So Barney got on a plane and went to New York to find out the next season's lineup on CBS. He wanted to see if house calls were still <laughs> on the schedule because that I was in it. Yeah. And he's standing outside the door and the executives all come out and say, Barney, no. He said, just tell me one thing. Is house calls on the schedule? No. Thank you. <laughs> so he calls, he calls my my manager, Monique, and said, I'm this is Barney Rosenberg calling for the third time. Ask Sharon Glass to play Christine Cagney. She said, I'm sorry, Barney, dear. Sharon is not available. And he said, bet me she's not available. She just got fired. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, <clears throat> that, that's how it happened. And um, thank God he pursued me um, because it's certainly the best thing, best, best decision I ever made. But you didn't want to take it the third time, even because taking over again for another actress, right? Is that? Yeah, you read the book, boy. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah I, had, I had my first meeting. I said, I just don't, I don't want to do it. I don't. I told Monique. She said, this man has asked three times here, and I think we should at least have lunch with him. Him, the mm. courtesy of a all right. So, <laughs> I go to meet him at a wonderful restaurant in Los Angeles called Musso uh, and Frank's, and um. So I meet him and I don't like him at all. <laughs> he kept telling me how hard I'd have to work on this show, 18 hour days. And I, I'm thinking, does this man think I'm a beginner? <laughs> I've already starred in series of my own, build over the title. I, it, I was offended by him trying to warn me how <laughs> grueling it would be. And um, I say in my book, I kept looking at a watch I'm not wearing. <laughs> when is this thing going to be over? <laughs> and um, the head of production of Orion, the studio that owned it. I mean, it was Barney's idea, but obviously he had to sell it. So, um, the head of Orion was also at the lunch. And he stepped in and said all the things I wanted to hear, which silly actors love to be stroked, you know. And <laughs> I admit it. He said all the things I wanted to hear. And, so outside, my manager said, Sharon, I think we should do it. 
I said, I don't want to. I don't want to do another series. She said, oh, I said, I want to be in the movies. She said, yes, dear, that's what we all want. Um, <laughs> but in the interim, until that happens, um, I think you should consider this series. I said, well, I don't like the guy with the beard. <laughs> she said, his name is Barney Rosenzweig. As I say in the book, whatever. Anyway, he pursued he pursued me and did it properly. And <clears throat> Tyne and I met and had a big battle about billing. That's in the book. <laughs> and it's fascinating how it was handled. That's never been done before. Well, well, anyway. how was it how was it handled? <laughs> I mean, because that's oh. a pretty big thing to to oh. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um I had done many series and Tyne had not, but she did create the role of Lacey. So she wanted top billing. And I didn't blame her. I told her, I said, you, you've been in this show longer than I have. I don't blame you, but I can't, I can't afford to take second billing to you. I, I mean, I, I've built a career on television. I hope you understand, you know, and, and, and good luck to you. And, um, so there was no animosity between us. She stated her case and I understood it, but I stated mine. Hmm. So it was over. So Barney decided he would switch billing every week. Oh. Every week on that series, you'll see. Starring Sharon Glass next week. Starring Tyne Daly in every week. Huh. They switched, whoever got the first card was switched every week. And if I got the first card on television, there was always an ad taken out every week for the show. <laughs> whoever got the first card on television got the second card in the print ad. <laughs> it drove them crazy because it was contractual. Oh, my gosh. You know, I never even noticed that when watching it. I never noticed it whatsoever. <laughs> Watching it in the gag reel, the editor put together two main titles. Da, 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 da. That's our theme, right? <laughs> Boom, starring Sharon Glass. Da, 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 starring Tyne Daly. <laughs> and it just was a joke for all the years. Oh my so, gosh. So this, this was a show that was canceled twice once before you got there and once after your first year. So what was amazing was this is one of those cases where the massive letter writing campaign actually saved the show. I mean, you always see things like that when, and when fans get upset and write in, but more often than not, it has no effect. Were you amazed? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know of a campaign that big. Um, I'm sure fans have always written in when something of theirs is canceled that they love. What happened is after we were canceled, Barney called Tyne and me and said, have you have any mail? Have you gotten any mail? And yes, and Tyne had yes. I'm sending me, I send someone over to get it for you, get it from me. I said, sure. He took every single letter and he wrote a personal, I mean, it had to be a form letter. And he mm -hmm. sent a form letter to every single person who responded. Amazing. And he said, uh, listen, uh, write a letter to your uh, local, your local um, affiliate station and write a letter to the, uh, I think it's the New York Times. Hmm. And what happened was 
the mail started coming and started coming and coming. And the affiliate station is sending, all the affiliates in the United States are sending it to the main CBS. All of the New York Times sent it all to CBS in LA. And it became this landslide. Mm -hmm. And the power of the people, you know, they saved us. They stepped up. Because that one man had this idea that, that we have a voice. And he made a series about two women who have a voice. Or try to, <laughs> and often succeed. Yes. Well, that I mean, that's you know, that is the thing. It was such a groundbreaking show for the portrayal of sw uh, strong women leads. I loved it. I was a huge fan back in the day. Arnie um, said, but... "In a fairer world, they could have worked at the post office." He said, <laughs> "It really doesn't matter because it's about the two women." Right. Yeah. 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 He said, "I put them in a job yeah. where there's you know life threatening and stuff." But um, it's always been about the two women, not what they did. Well, we've heard that you weren't exactly aware of the impact that that had culturally at the time. No. I had no... Tanya and I were working 18 hours a day. Uh -huh. And when you're doing a television series, it's not like being on stage where you go out and take a bow to applause. We, I never asked what the numbers were. <laughs> Apparently it was like 35, <clears throat> mil, 35 million a week, but... You know, it's like Super Bowl time, but we didn't know. And um, we were just, you know, going along. And towards the end of the show, we were still shooting it, but it was towards the end of it. Um, well, this is when I found out the impact we had. I, I can't speak for time. <clears throat> Excuse me, please. Um, we were invited to Washington to do the March on Washington. Bush was in office. And um, women joined from all over the country. Mm. Arrived in D.C. We did this enormous march. I'd never been a part of anything like this. Tyne and I were in the front holding the banner with Gloria Steinem and Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, <clears throat> it was huge. And at least me and my naivete, I had no idea where we were going, what was going to happen. I show up, you know, that's what I do. And um, so we get there where we're supposed to be. <clears throat> I hadn't, I didn't have any idea where we were physically. And Gloria says to me, go out on stage. <clears throat> Excuse me, I said, oh, we're going out there. She said, just walk out. I said, what do I say? She said, don't say anything, just walk out. Time, both of you, go out. Just walk out on stage. Well, you guys can't tell you. So the two of us walked out on stage and there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of women all in front of the Washington Monument. I didn't know where we were. It was like if you were the president and looking at your constituents. I mean, it was just it was the most beautiful sight, this monument, and then loaded with women screaming and crying and clapping. And I looked at them and I'm not that, I'm not stupid. I got it. I realized the impact that we had had. And I don't think I ever would have known despite of press and all of that, you have to feel that 
that feeling to see the women we did it for, and there they were. <clears throat> Amazing. It changed their lives. Well, <clears throat> not, not that we're so great. We just rent a vehicle <laughs> that allowed them to change their own. No, I definitely think you had an impact, a huge cultural impact. Uh, now, after being almost canceled, the show comes back, wins a couple of awards for best drama. You win the Emmy oh, twice for lead actress. So time went it four times. Yes, yes. But the, how satisfying is that for you, coming from being a contract player to almost being fired to to you know winning an Emmy now? It was so swell. <laughs> and uh, I, for the first three years of Cagney and Lacey, I lost the Emmy to Tyne Daly. <laughs> and I learned to be gracious. You know, I really had that one down. Um, and the fourth time, shit, if they didn't say my name. And it was the most wonderful feeling. And, and, and Michael J. Fox presented it to me. Mm. Michael J. Fox and Ali McGraw. And um, I understand that there's always a rehearsal the day of the Emmys for the presenters. So they go out pretending they have an envelope and open it and just say a fake name. You know, they just time it. And I understand that day in rehearsal, Michael J. Fox walked out, opened the envelope and said, oh, Sharon Gless. <laughs> he just made it up, you know, but. So when he did finally open it, and it really was my name, he said, oh, this is great. Darn glass. <laughs> it was nice. It was, it was wonderful. Fantastic. Well, in, in I won another... it again. I, yeah. I, I did. I won it the next year also. <laughs> um, and then I thought I'd win it the next year. And Tyne and I would each have three. We'd tie, you know. But it went back to time. That's okay. <laughs> well, it, it, now it's getting all this amazing critical attention. And of course, um, the show was holding its own on Mondays, but then the network decides in their infinite wisdom to change the night. Your ratings dipped and then the show was canceled and you didn't even find out about it directly in the middle of a cliffhanger, no less. How upset were you or were you kind of ready to move on? Had it... The cancellation of Cagney and Lacey? Yeah. I was in rehab. The name of my book is Apparently There Were Complaints. Mm -hmm. And it was about my drinking. Cag Christine Cagney was, was an alcoholic on the show. Mm. It's the first time that disease had ever been dealt with by a lead in the film. Leads, uh, leads in series. I mean, they never have anything wrong with them. You know, they, they're just heroes but we decided to take this hero and give her clay feet mm. and she was an alcoholic and turns out so was i mm. my brilliant performance by the way i did win the emmy for the drunk episode but i was not drunk i do not drink when i'm working please know that yeah. i'm not that good <laughs> <clears throat> i have to be totally clear and sharp in order to do that kind of work and they wrote an amazing script for me. Arnie asked me, invited me into his office. He said, I want you to see this. We're not showing it to anybody. And I want your feedback. And it was that episode. Mm. And I took it home and I read it. And I went back to his office and I said, it's brilliant. 
who are you going to get to play it? I was so petrified by the material. Mm. It was, it was daunting, but we did it. Never been done on television before. You were great in it too. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Um, and the nice thing that Barney did when all the really terrible scenes happened in her apartment, once she enters her apartment in the second half, second half of the second half, he shot everything in sequence. On TV, you never shoot anything in sequence. It's just too yeah. expensive, you know? Um, but he shot everything in sequence. So as drunk as I got, I knew how far I still had to go and how far I could go. And it was it was a very generous thing on his part because mm. it cost a lot more money. Because mm. we didn't know where I was going to land, you know, <laughs> in that apartment. And he did it all in sequence. Well, I, I do want to hit another groundbreaking show that you were in queer as folk i used to watch that show and i thought you were it was so well done you were fantastic in it how did you come to the part to uh, begin with and i'm so sorry in, in queer the as folk. oh that changed my life again mm -hmm. i'm so blessed honest to god um so i wasn't so busy and it was uh, during my career where i went gone through menopause i got really obese and um my husband wanted a divorce and um i said i'll give you a divorce we've been married nine years he said but not until i make it to 10 because i'm going to beat out the other two he was married to the other two wives nine years also <laughs> so anyway i was doing a play in chicago and um a man a friend of mine steeped me a script called queer as folk no one had seen it. It was uh, under the table. And it you was the, seen the British version? You had never seen it? I'd never seen the British version. Okay. And here was the American version that was not being, was only being sent to Chicago and New York and LA for mm -hmm. actors to see, for agents to submit their uh, clients if they had the nerve. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, so somebody in Chicago that I knew was a casting director. And he called me. He said, Sharon, I have a script. Have you ever heard of Queer's Folk? I said, no. He said, there's a part in here for you. He said, I'm sending a car over right now. I want you to call me immediately. So I read it, and I didn't call him immediately. I called Showtime, the network who was making it. I've never done I'm. I'm not that aggressive on my own behalf because I've always had a manager, you know. But I called Showtime, Barney's assistant, now worked for the head of Showtime. So I knew her. And I called her and I said, I want this part. She said, you don't want this part. And I said, yeah, I do. She said, it's, it's in Canada. I said, I don't care. She said, they're not paying any money. I don't care. Said, well, I'll run it by Jerry. I said, please. Jerry Offsay was the head of Showtime. And he was the man brave enough to take this series because it was sent to, um, uh, let's see, the big cable network. 
HBO? HBO. It was sent to HBO first, and they were cowards. They backed down. They wouldn't do it. So show, Jerry off say it's showtime. Did you? Jerry gets on the phone. He says, Sharon, I like the idea. He said, I think you'll bring a little class to the project. I said, Jerry, class is not what I had in mind. <laughs> <laughs> then may we fly you out to meet the producers. I don't want to run roughshod over them. You know, it's their show. I said, of course. So I went in and I met them. I said, I don't read. I'm, it's because I'm not good at it. I said, no, you don't have to do that. We had the most fun meeting and I walked out with the job. Hmm. And that changed my life again. Changed my life again. My weight would go up and down. And no matter what size I was, they'd have Debbie, who was my character. They'd have Debbie either on a diet or Debbie eating ice cream out of a container. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they totally just set everything to whatever, to accommodate whatever I was doing to myself. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and they were so, so wonderful. Mm. And well, it was a great, great show. Boy, did that... I, I was so fortunate to be part of a show that saved lives. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to get mail from young boys saying, um, my best friend, in this one letter, my best friend uh, is not alive. He committed suicide, but he said, I am alive because I saw your show. He didn't see the show in time. Mm. And I used to hold boys who'd come up to me saying, would you hold me? I'd say, sure. And I give him a hug. And one boy cried. He couldn't stop for several minutes on the clock. And all I could think of is the damage that has been done to this. That a woman on television, he relates to, and if she just will have physical contact with him. Mm. And I got to do that. Yeah, you absolutely. I got to do that. You became the adopted mother to the much of the gay community because of that. So it's really, yeah, it's really astounding. Um, the producers called me recently. The producers of Soak asking me because I said I have one more series in me. And they called me and they said, "You want to do Debbie's Diner?" And I thought, same character, same place. And she comes back after all these years and buys the place finally hmm. and runs it. And I said, I don't know. I thought, gee, I've done it. And anyway, I called them a couple of weeks ago. I said, you still want to do that with me? Because the other queerest folk was on and it just didn't land. The one in New Orleans. I don't know if you saw it. Hmm. Well, is it going to be happening? So what do you think? I, th I think would I had to, to do it. it? Yeah, I think you should do that. <laughs> so. I don't know. We have to see if we can sell if there's an interest for honest gay material. So. Mm. It's such a well done show. I mean, the cast was so great. You still keep in touch. Weren't with them? they fabulous? Yes. Oh, I was so fortunate to work with those young boys. They were so brave. They were so brave, you guys. They, they weren't exhibitionists. They were actors. You, you still keep in touch with anyone from the show? All of them. All of them? <laughs> All of them. Mm. Yeah, we're still very, very close. I just did a show for Peter Page. Oh. Peter Page is now a, a producer. He has been actually for many years. And I just did one of his episodes. Hmm. He asked me to come and guest with him. So I did. 
I'm so hmm. fortunate. Yeah, they're all very dear friends of mine. Hmm. And uh, Peter came to Palm Springs and interviewed me in front of all the men um, to sell my book. Mm. And all the proceeds went to the Palm Springs Library. <laughs> well, speaking of that, um, what made you decide to write your memoir? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, in a nutshell, I was invited to CBS right after the end of a burn notice, <laughs> the last series I did. That was the longest running show. We were just about to start our eighth year is a long show and uh jeffrey the lead didn't just he was burned out so cbs heard that burn notice was coming to an end and they asked to meet me i thought this is so cool maybe they'll offer me another series so i walk in and nina nina tesler president of cbs at that time and she put out her hand and she said, welcome home, Sharon. I thought, this is so cool. That's where I did Cagney and Lacey. And I thought, what a lovely, lovely greeting. So I thought this is going to be swell, right? So I sit down and the head of comedy is there, the head of uh, drama and the head of new shows and Nina Tess. And I'm there for an hour and I do everything I can to entertain them. And at the end, Nina says, you're a writer. I said, well, no, I am not. And she said, well, maybe you're not a writer, but you're a storyteller. Mm. I said, okay. And she said, well, did you know that we own Simon & Schuster? <laughs> I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> she said, well, we do. And um, I think you have a book in you. And that's why I said, I'm not a writer. She said, no, but you're a storyteller. And she said, we're calling Simon Schuster today. And the next day I got a call from the president of Simon Schuster asking if I would come and meet him in New York. <laughs> so I waited a year. I just said, yeah, yeah. Waited a year and nothing was happening for me. So I was in New York and I made, I set a meeting up to meet him. He gave me a deal that day. I read one chapter that I'd written to go in with, you know, just in case. Well, that's sort of a lie, but it's too long to tell you how I came about reading it. Um, <laughs> But I did end up having to read something for him. my manager. Was, he said, read, read, read for him. Read what you wrote. He said, no. The president says, read it. I'd love to hear it. So I read it. He said, we'd like to offer you a book deal. And we want you to, his secretary down the hall was laughing when I was reading. So he said, we also like you to do the audio version. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did. And I've won three awards for the audio. Oh, oh my great. god! <laughs> well, talking a lot. Forgive me, I'm talking a lot. But no, the, the memoir is fantastic. I, I I went through it in two days. I just <laughs> from really yes. Fantastic. Oh, I'm so pleased. So I, I love I loved it. I thought it was like I said at the beginning. It was just you know funny, heartbreaking, everything, and just the stories are fantastic, as you know we see and as you've been telling. But uh, and you know, I my grand, I told you my grandmother was force right. behind me in that book um not all happy but yeah. i don't know if you saw the part where i went to a psychic oh a couple of years ago a few years ago and i said would my grim i said you know i'm a 
successful actress. I've made wonderful money. I have awards. But it, is my grandmother proud of me now? One thing I wanted all my life. Is she proud of me now? Did you ask her? She said, let me check. She came back and she said, she said to tell you she's proud of you still. Mm -hmm. That's great. Isn't that great? Yes. <laughs> and it sounds just like her. That's enough. That's enough. Well, do want to ask you, you mentioned that you, you're possibly going to do another Queer as Folk, you know, variation of something. So, Oh, I don't know. The producers asked me, would I be interested in doing it at Debbie's well, Diner? I think Obviously. And I, I just recently called them again and said, you know, I'd like to do that. But I mean, it has to be pitched. It has to be sold, you know. Well, hoping so. Will there be another Cagney and Lacey uh, reunion at all? I don't think so. No more? Well, you know, I mean, Tyne and I are not kids anymore. And um, <laughs> apparently CBS attempted to make it recently hmm. with other actors. And Barney was allowed to talk to them every day. They had to send him the dailies <laughs> on his screen and they had to talk to him. They were forced to. It was part of the contract. He'd look at the dailies. He'd try to advise them because they, they were just way off. You know, mm. and they wouldn't listen to a word he said, and CBS never bought it. Oh, what why, they why? failed to do was they <laughs> failed to remember it was about the two women, <laughs> not about who's got the gun and who's, you know, what it's not about the case. There are a lot of cases, it's about those two women. Why, why should a network care what the creator has to say? I mean, it's mind boggling. I think contractually or something. <laughs> No, they I'm were kidding. forced. I mean, it's just, they it's, were forced. They were forced to listen uh, to him, and they wouldn't. And you know, it's mind-boggling network decisions sometimes. <laughs> I know. It's a different world. Well, Sharon, we want to thank you so much for coming on. I mean, we have you, your career is so impressive that we couldn't get to everything, but you are welcome back anytime. But again, may I tell you, you one thing? You may tell I anything. tell you one thing as an example? Behind you is a picture of Tyne and me. Yes. Now I played Cagney, Cagney, right. and Lacey. Do you know that every time, every time we did a photo shoot, our publicist would be there, switching us, making us move the seat, move the seat, back and forth, back and forth. Whoever gets to be on the left. <laughs> yeah, it's, I see it's over the wrong, the wrong people. <laughs> I know. But anyway, again, sorry, I just had to sort. No, it's funny. No, again, thank you. Like I said, anytime you'd like to come back, we would love to have you. It was just such thank a thank you. This has been so it. much fun. You guys are wonderful. Thank you very much for having oh, me. It's, thank you. it's our honor and privilege. Yes. Uh, you're very welcome. <laughs> well, okay, this guys. has been Pop Culture Retro. I'm Jonathan Rosen uh. with Mike Eisenman. And again, a very special thanks to Sharon Gless. And please subscribe. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Retro, where no one was hurt during the making of this podcast.